Welcome to the Runner's World Show, where each week we entertain, inspire, and inform you about all things running. I'm David Willey, Editor-in-Chief of Runner's World. This week, we've got great conversations with two Olympic marathoners, both past and present. In the first, Shalane Flanagan talks with Heather Mayer Irvin about how, after a super strong start to the Olympic marathon trials this past February, things unraveled fast, to the point where Shalane very nearly missed punching her ticket to her fourth Olympics. The amazing thing about the marathon is within steps and within miles and minutes, things can drastically change. You can be one minute elated, think you're going to rock it, and then the next you're humbled. And it's just, you know, the nature of the marathon gods. Shalane reflects on what went wrong that day and on what she's done about it to prepare for the heat in Rio. Then, part two of my conversation with 1972 Olympic gold medalist Frank Shorter. Here we go deep on the most pivotal moments of Frank's life and his running career, that 1972 gold medal, but also the terrorist attacks that took place before the race was even run and the bizarre finish to that race. And also the 1976 Olympic marathon in Montreal, where we now know Frank was robbed of a second gold medal by an East German doper. Recently, Frank has also published a book called My Marathon. And in the book and in our conversation, we talk about moments that unfortunately seem almost movie-like in their surreal, sometimes horrifying circumstances. And then I found running. And I found that just moving across the ground was the best thing I could do for my stress relief. And I was safe because he couldn't run. <laughs> he couldn't catch me. Literally and figuratively, he couldn't catch me. Frank is a generous storyteller who has risen above abuse, neglect, and bitter disappointments to become an icon of our sport. It's a conversation you won't want to miss. Thanks for joining us. Shalane Flanagan will run the Olympic Marathon this Sunday, August 14th, in Rio. She's just 34, but this will be her fourth Olympics. In the 2004 Games in Athens, she ran the 5,000 meters, where she finished 25th. In Beijing in 2008, she won a bronze medal in the 10,000 meters. And in 2012 in London, she ran the marathon in 2 hours, 25 minutes, and 51 seconds, finishing 10th. Her PR, however, is 2.21.14, which makes Shalane the second fastest female American marathoner ever. Shalane is known for her aggressive front-running style, and in this year's Olympic Marathon Trials in Los Angeles, the script was the same. She went to the front early with her teammate and friend Amy Cragg, and the pair ran side-by-side in the 73-degree heat until Shalane came undone around mile 24. She hung on, but just barely, finishing third behind Desi Linden and running 2.29.19, her slowest marathon ever. She collapsed into Amy Craig's arms in a photo that then went viral and later had to get an IV to be treated for dehydration. In April, Shalane sat with nutrition editor Heather Mayer Irvin to talk about exactly what went wrong that day and how she plans to avoid a repeat of that near disaster when she's in Rio. By the way, you'll hear Shalane mention Elise in this conversation. That would be Elise Kopecki, Shalane's friend and former teammate at the University of North Carolina and also her co-author of a new cookbook called Run Fast, Eat Slow. Shalane, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. So can you tell us a little bit about your experience at the Olympic Marathon Trials in February? It was a thrilling race, but I know it, it ended a, a little tough. Yeah. Um, so my preparation for the Olympic Trials uh, was a little rocky to begin with. I came down actually with a little bit of a foot injury. Um, so my my training was abbreviated um, in the sense I had 10 weeks to prepare, which was fine, um, but maybe not the most ideal circumstances. But um, training did, once I got up and running, went really well. So I was feeling, um, you know, cautiously optimistic going into L.A., uh, but I wasn't totally prepared for the conditions of the weather. It turned out to be a really hot day for L.A., um, higher um, temps than expected, and I never really run a marathon in the heat. So it's kind of unknown territory. Uh, the race was going beautifully. I thought I was going to have really a great, phenomenal race, um, you know, heading into the last lap, um, you know, with six miles to go, I was feeling pretty confident, but shortly, um, you know, within like a half mile. And the amazing thing about the marathon is 
within steps and within miles and minutes, things can drastically change. You can be one minute elated, think you're going to rock it, and then the next you're humbled. And it's just, you know, the nature of the marathon gods. But that day, the heat um, did get to me, and I did have some problem um, with the digestion of my um, fluids that day. Um, so for some reason I must have made my drink, um, a little too concentrated. And if it's too concentrated, you actually have absorption problems. And, um, so I was experiencing some absorption problems with my fluids and, um, I started to get chills, which is a sign of dehydration. And when we got to about mile 23, um, I was running with my training partner and I looked over to her and I think she could notice that my fed, my face was getting just redder and redder. And I said, Amy, like I'm really struggling. She's like, Oh no, you're fine. You're fine. Just, we'll get to the next water station. I'll get you a water. Like, don't worry about it. Like you'll, you'll be good. You're good. And I'm like, no, no, Amy, I am not good. And she said that she turned and looked to me and like realized I, my, my face was getting really, really red and she could tell I was starting to overheat. And at that point, I was thinking, I, I, I may be missing out on my fourth Olympic team right here. This, this may not happen for me today. But Amy stuck by my side and really encouraged me and really helped me get through some really, really rough moments um, over the last three miles. And, you know, at that point in time, my motivation was just to not let her down. I mean, she was basically slowing down to make sure I was okay. Um, so a very selfless act on my training partner's um, behalf. And, um you know, I just focused on just putting one foot in front of the other and um, just grinding it out. And, you know, you prepare in training, not always to feel good. You prepare for the moments when you feel really bad. And that's like really when it really matters, the training that you put in. So my body was able to find a way, despite the fact that I was overheating and really dehydrated, my body was basically shutting down on me. I found a way to get to the finish line, but it was a really painful, uncomfortable experience. But when you have an Olympic birth and the chance to represent your country, you basically find any way to get it done. Um, and thankfully I did. And Amy took off with about a mile to go. Thankfully, I kept telling her like, go, go, go. And she wouldn't leave my side. Um, but secretly when she wouldn't leave, I was like, oh, thank God she didn't leave. <laughs> um, because I was really having a hard time and the comfort of having her near me really, really was huge help. So, um, I did get to the finish line and don't really remember much afterwards because I was really dehydrated. But, um, you know, you learn um, so much. You know, here I am with my fourth Olympics. You would have think I, I knew, knew it all by then. You know, I, I would have everything dialed in, but there's always room to improve. And I'm excited to dial in um, my hydration during the race um, to just make sure that I don't have the same experience in Rio. Yeah, it was it was quite the finish, but I mean, I think that that photo of you and and Amy at the end is is going to go down in the history books for sure. I know. I was just like, oh my goodness, <laughs> my my partner would do that. I hope. Yeah. Um, so you you kind of alluded to this, but now that you're you know you just came back from Rio, um, you're starting to prep, starting to train, think about your hydration, your fueling. Um, so is what happened in LA, is that making you reevaluate your strategy? Is it making you think differently about it? You know, what are you taking from that moving forward, uh, looking into August? Yeah, I think in the days leading up, like my, my nutrition was great dialed in. Um, but I do think my strategy in the actual race, um, I'm going to actually go to the Olympic training center and get, um, a sweat analysis done to make sure that I have a drink that really matches, my genetic makeup, you know, um, they'll analyze how much I sweat, the ratio and the composition of my sweat. Um, cause I reviewed with doctors, you know, what I ate the days before and they said it was dialed in perfect, but, um, the, the fluid that I was consuming was just too, uh, too sugary and it just basically shut down my, um, gastric system. So we're going to experiment with some different, um, fluids for heat and humidity because in the past I've run cooler marathons and I've had no problem. Um, but the heat and humidity is just a whole different factor. And so I'll go get tested and, um, hopefully with the analysis and the information they receive from that, we'll dial that in. And then it's just kind of a arts and science from there and just dial in what works for me and I'll use it in training and, and find out what I need to do. Um, so moving a little bit toward, you know, eating and drinking and, you know, being in another country when you're competing, how do athletes maintain their diets when you're in Olympic you know, village? I imagine you bring some of your own food. Yeah, I never leave home before. Like if I'm heading to a competition, I always pack um, my go-to foods and snacks because um, I always my mantra is control what you can control. And so if I can control the food that I'm eating as much as I can, then that I feel like gives me the best chance to be successful. So 
when I'm traveling to a race, I always bring what I'm going to eat on race day morning and which is usually, um, you know, my oatmeal. And so I bring my oatmeal and I bring my nut butter and I bring, um, you know, dried fruit if I need. Um, but if I get to an area and there's the food is available, you know, I'll get the fresh fruits and everything, but I always have like an emergency plan. Um, because I just don't want to be stuck in a situation where I feel like I'm compromised because of my nutrition. So always planning ahead is like the key factor. How many suitcases does it take for you to properly fuel when you're going abroad? <laughs> yeah, there's, you know, a, a mini suitcase of food and then the rest is all, you know, the, the training gear. But I do, I take it serious um, in my nutrition. So Now, can you give us a quick run through of your favorite pre-race meal? You mentioned some oatmeal, nut butter, and uh, your mid-run fuel and then um, your post-race splurge. Yeah, so my race day oatmeal is is my favorite. Um, and then fueling during the race um, is usually just, in the past, it's been Gatorade, but I think I'm going to have to reevaluate that and find a new um, sports drink. But Elisa's helped me also find um, kind of a homebrew um, electrolyte drink that um, I don't know if I'll use on race day, but it's just a good alternative to like the, the corporate uh, drinks out there like the Gatorade. Not knocking Gatorade, it's definitely a great... Um, product, but if you just want more natural um, kind of approach to hydration, um, we're kind of tweaking and coming up with a new drink right now with combination of like coconut water, some filtered water, um, some salt, um, like a spritz of a lemon, yeah, cranberry juice. We've been experimenting, so it's been kind of fun to come up with our own kind of sports drink. So, um, and how long you, you just came back from Rio to scope everything out? How long will you be there? Um, before you start uh, your race? Um, I'll actually only fly in about four or five days in advance. Uh, I will do some heat and humidity adaptation on probably the East Coast and then fly down. So I'll get some, you know, I'll acclimate prior going in. But I think, um, you know, the Olympics is a really exciting event. And I think when you're there as an athlete, you can get almost too excited. So you kind of have to time it perfectly so you don't get there and use up the energy before the race even begins. So um, I think, you know, that four to five day range, enough to adapt and be ready to go. But um, when you're in the U.S., you can control more things. So um, it was good to go down to Rio because now I know what it's going to look like and I can anticipate all the factors I'm going to face. As tough as that Olympic trials marathon was for Shalane, she bounced back fast. In June, she knocked 40 seconds off her half marathon PR, running 107.51 at the San Diego Rock and Roll Half Marathon. And then just three weeks later, she ran a new American record for the 10K on the road, running 30.52 at the BAA 10K in Boston. She also paid a visit to the U.S. Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, where she ran on a treadmill for 90 minutes in an environmental chamber set to match or even exceed the conditions that are expected in Rio for the marathon right around 80 degrees and about 75% humidity. That's pretty miserable. The point was to learn more about her own physiology and how the conditions in Rio are likely to affect her. A team of experts analyzed her sweat rate, sweat composition, core body temperature, heart rate, and even how her biomechanics changed when she started to struggle in the heat. Shalane learned that she is a heavy sweater. In fact, she perspired almost three times more than Amy Craig did during the same test. All of this will inform exactly what will be in those water bottles she'll be drinking from in Rio and how frequently she will be drinking from them. Those are pretty closely guarded secrets in elite running, but it's clear that she will be better prepared for the conditions in Rio than she was in Los Angeles. In a future episode of the show, we'll feature another conversation with Shalane and with Elise Kopecki, her co-author of Run Fast, Eat Slow, We'll talk about the cookbook and also about their shared nutrition philosophy, which changed both of their running careers and even their lives. Frank Shorter is the only American to win two Olympic medals in the marathon. He won the 1972 Olympic marathon in Munich, a win that helped spark the first running boom in the United States. Four years later, at the 1976 Montreal Games, he got silver. In both races, however, he was denied the finish he deserved. 
In Munich, an imposter in a singlet jumped from a golf cart, entered the Olympic Stadium, ran a lap, and crossed the finish line before Frank. And in 1976, Frank finished second to a then-unknown runner, an East German named Waldemar Czerpinski. Years later, Czerpinski's name appeared in official documents chronicling the state-sponsored East German doping system. Czerpinski never admitted to cheating, and the gold medals he won in both 1976 and 1980 still stand. While Frank knew Czerpinski's performance was suspect, he remained silent about his doubts until years after the 76 games. He did eventually, however, become a passionate advocate for clean sport. He helped establish the United States Anti-Doping Agency, or USADA, and served as its first chairman from 2000 to 2003. While Frank has been well-known for decades for his accomplishments as a runner, it's only recently that he began talking about his horrific childhood growing up in Middletown, New York. Five years ago, he talked with Runner's World writer-at-large John Brandt about the abuse that he and his nine siblings suffered at the hands of their father, a man Frank calls, quote, a sadistic, abusive sociopath. Brandt's piece, called Frank's Story, ran in the October 2011 issue of Runner's World. And since that story came out, Frank, who now lives in Boulder, Colorado, has been working with a nonprofit called Healthy Learning Paths, which develops a healthy habit curriculum for local schools. The group recently added a mental health component to, as Frank says, help kids realize that it's okay to talk about things in certain environments. Frank and John Brandt collaborated again on Frank's memoir called My Marathon, Reflections on a Gold Medal Life, which came out in July. In the book and in our conversation, Frank explains how his childhood abuse led him to start running and later even shaped what kind of runner and what kind of man he became. I spoke with Frank just before the Olympic track and field trials in July, and I started by asking him to tell me about the 1972 Munich Games and what he remembers about the day that 11 Israeli athletes and a German police officer were killed by a Palestinian terror group. Well, I was sleeping on the balcony of our rooming complex in the Olympic Village um, four days before my race, and it was the day, uh, the morning of the massacre of the Israeli athletes. And I actually heard, I heard a gunshot, and it was about four in the morning, and I thought to myself, that's the first time I've heard something like that. That's not a door slamming. That's not a fire door or something. So I drifted back to sleep. I woke up, and usually you would start to hear the hustle and bustle down below, about four floors down in the Olympic Village. And it was quiet. And and the way I've always described it is it's the way the jungle is when there's a predator moving around. There's no sound. And I looked down. There was no one walking around. And it was maybe 7, 7.30 in the morning. And I walked into uh, our rooming complex, and there were a whole bunch of uh, Oregon runners. And Dave Waddle and I, Kenny Moore was there, um, Steve Savage, um, uh, Mike Manley, uh, John Anderson, all Oregon-connected people. And and they were hovered around the TV set, and Steve Prefontaine, Pre, was actually translating what was going on because his mother... Uh, was from Germany, and he was fluent right. in German. It was actually his first language. And so we spent that day kind of around the TV set figuring out um, what was going on, and then periodically we'd a couple times go out for a run, and um, we just, uh, on those runs, really had decided that we were all going home. Uh, people had died. It turned out that what we saw on the TV was pretty darn accurate, you, you, even at that time, um, and that that the Black September terrorist had come in, and there was this guy named Abuni Da, who eventually, I guess, was identified as their uh, leader. And we thought that was it. We were going home. So we were running at that time, just kind of deal with it. And they had the memorial service, and at that service it was announced that the games would go on. As they, In retrospect, you realize they rightly should. That should be your reaction to terrorism. And I'll, I'll never forget, I was walking back from the ceremony um, for the athletes, and it, the Olympic Village was close to the stadium, and we were walking on a causeway over the road, and Kenny Moore and I were talking. I said, you know, Kenny, um, you, you know, he had just 
um, said, you know, I'm going to run and, and it will be in memory of the, of the athletes. And, and I said, you know, Kenny, I'm, um, the only place that something could happen, uh, in addition to what just happened is out on the marathon course. But I am not going to think about it because if I think about it at all, it's exactly what the terrorists want. And it really was the first international act of terrorism on that scale. Right. There'd been a plane hijacking, I think, and, and, um, some other, uh, events, but not of this magnitude. And, and so I told him right there that, uh, I would not, um, think about it. Um, we went over to the stadium and just got ready to run and, the gun went off, and I ran the entire Olympic race uh, and never once thought about any other kind of terrorist uh, act. And um, the race itself, uh, I was ready. I had trained um, for at least a year in a way doing my high-speed interval training to get as good as I could possibly get at surging and then recovering as quickly as possible and resuming as fast a pace as possible. And I decided that somewhere around nine miles, and there was a palace grounds called Nymphenburg, uh, I would make a surge and try to get as much of a lead as I could because this had never been done, uh, to my knowledge at the time, and I think it's true, in the Olympic marathon. And I did. I took off at about nine miles. We were coming around. It was a turn. It wasn't quite a 180-degree turn, but it was about 150 degrees and we were in the palace grounds, and I'll never forget, as a crowd slows down to go around the turn, I just kept my momentum up and started to run at what I figured was about a 430-mile pace. I turned around after maybe a minute, and I had like a 50-yard lead. And at that point, my thought was, they're making a big mistake because I feel really good. And so I... I backed off a little bit after that first mile, but still from miles 9 to 17, I probably averaged the next, oh, seven miles somewhere in the 440s or low 440s per mile. I think part of this um, story, as I uh, recounted, is, you know, you, you have a plan, but you also have the plan according to the route. And I'd run the entire route, and I noticed there were many, many turns. So I figured if I could get enough of a lead, and it didn't have to be that big a lead, I would be totally out of sight. I could I could have a minute lead and literally be two or three right angle turns around blocks ahead of everybody else. So I w- right. I would be out of sight. And and so that was my strategy. And then I just tried to maintain um, my effort over the um, rest of the race. And, and it was a strong field. M- Mama Walde was in the field. Ron Hill. Derek Clayton, and and they just let you go, presumably because they thought you were surging too soon, and surely they were going to reel you in. Yeah, it, it, and again, you, you, you talk about when fate intervenes at about 21 miles. Um, I was running over a, a, a bridge in, um, in the English Garden in Munich, and um, there on the top of the bridge... Uh, Standing next to a bicycle was Roy Benson, who went on to become really a, a, a good exercise physiologist, a very, very good one. And I didn't even know he was there. And I go by at 20 miles, and he says, you have a 90-second lead. So then I start doing the math. Okay, I've got six miles to go. If I've got 90 seconds, that's 15 seconds a mile. And if I can stay close to five-minute pace, that means they have to run 445 for a mile to catch me. And I'm not sure any of these guys can do that. One, um, because that's well beyond world record pace for the marathon. And the other thing is it's this far into the race. So at that point, my, my goal came to be to just not slow down, but to ride that edge that all runners know. Anybody who runs knows that there's that edge where you're going along and you're trying to stay just this side of the anaerobic cliff. So I just kept up the effort, got outside the stadium, was going to make the turn into the stadium. By that time, I knew I had a lead and people weren't quite going to catch me. And I heard this roar and I thought, oh, it was the last day of track and field. It, 
at that time, they held the marathon the last day of track and field and not on closing ceremonies day. And so I, I thought, oh, someone must have made a height in the high jump or something. So I ran through the tunnel, down into the stadium, came out onto the track, and it was silent. <laughs> Absolutely silent. Not what and you it's were fun- expecting. Not what I was expecting. <laughs> and the first thought that came through my mind, I swear, was, geez, I'm an American, but give me a break. <laughs> I mean, I said, you know, because, you know, at that time, America, it was, it was quite a time of turmoil. And so um, I thought, okay, well, that's all right. I'll, I'll just finish. Kept up the effort. And then people started to whistle. And in Europe, whistling's booing. And I'm thinking, gosh, what's going on here? And then I got on the backstretch. And I'll always remember this voice. This voice calls out, don't worry, Frank. And I thought to myself, why should I worry? I'm winning. And I then glanced over to the left and saw some commotion at the finish line, came through, finished. And by that time, there, there were some, some cheers going on. And immediately, somebody came up to me and said, well, what'd you think of that guy? And I knew. I knew immediately what had happened. I knew someone had come in and run on the track um, ahead of me. I think uh, I was one of the least upset people on the planet at that, at that point because I'd won. I, you know, I'd finished first. And many people who watched it were just livid. I mean, you know, I'm not sure they were kicking in their TV sets, but they were mad. And what it made me realize was that I never ran for the roar. And this wasn't somebody who jumped out of the stands. It wasn't a fan, right? Who, you know, sometimes you see fans jump on the soccer no. pitch and run around. No. This was someone who was an imposter, who was dressed like a runner, acted like a runner, and, and, and he had literally been, he had been, stole your thunder. Well, he had been riding on the back of a golf cart. I think he was 17, 18 years old. And one of his buddies was driving this golf cart that was servicing the pop stands around the Olympic Stadium for the two weeks of the track and field. So the, the security uh, guards were used to this, you know, golf cart being allowed in. And so he just hopped on the back of the golf cart. He had a, you know, singlet and he wrote down a number. And and <laughs> one of the things I've always sort of laughed at, though, he was kind of a chunky guy. And yeah. and so I'm just thinking anybody who knew always, anything about running. Aren't the imposters yeah, any, always? <laughs> <laughs> but I thought anybody who jumps, anybody who knows anything about running is going to look at this guy and say, this is, this isn't a marathon runner out there. Right. So you, you went on to win the gold medal, the first Olympic marathon gold medal any American had ever won at that point, against the backdrop of this terrorist attack, this international news story that you know presaged the age of terrorism that we're living in now in, in many ways. And you have been given credit, rightfully so, for at least contributing to the the first running boom in the United States. And some people even consider you the the father of the running boom. So I'm curious, what was it like for you when you got back to the States after that as a as an Olympic gold medalist? What what was the state of running in the US then? And did you see things changing from your own perspective? And how did you feel about your own contributions to whatever you saw? Well I the way I put it is I think in some fashion when Americans saw an American could win this race, I think it kind of planted the seed. And, and, and that seed was, um, it was a seed of thought. And, and I think what happened is people started to think about the marathon differently. In a way, I was kind of demystifying it because I don't think people saw me as sort of any kind of uh, physically imposing or, you know, a different type of athlete. You know, I came from, you know, sort of a, a standard American middle-class background. Um, you know, my my aspirations weren't in sports. They were in academics. I was Ivy League educated. Uh, and, and, and I think that sort of planted that thought that, you know, Americans can do this. So average runners who really then decided they just wanted to see how good they could get started to really get competitive in these races. So I think that was the first stage in the running boom. And then, you know, after we talk about Montreal, after Montreal, I think that's really when, when things took off right. and, and, and really exploded. So those 1976 Olympics in, in Montreal also 
foreshadowed an age that we are living in today. And that, of course, is the, the age of performance enhancement and artificial performance enhancement and, and doping specifically. You came to Montreal primed to repeat as as the gold medalist in the marathon. And once again, you had a, a very, very good race, but also one that didn't quite finish as you expected. Right. And so show up at the Olympic Stadium, and the plan was to, to surge at the same point. And, and at this point, I had been running marathons for four years, and no one in the world had been able to keep up with me when I'd just gone and surged and taken off early in the race. And so my my feeling this time was, instead of having it be a surprise, it was going to be more along the lines, you know what I'm going to do, I know what I'm going to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. And, and, and we'll so, see if you can answer. <laughs> right. And we'll see if you can answer. And so we just went out and, and, and the same thing was happening. A big group developed, but I waited a little longer and I started to surge at 10 miles this time. And um, everyone, they let me go except for one person. And this person who ran with me um, was wearing a white singlet with no markings, no national markings on it. So from about, for the next, who, nine, nine to 10 miles, we just sort of ran together and, and I'd surge and he'd catch up and I'd surge. And I began to realize, you know, he, he was running very easily. It was very easy for him um, uh, to run. But I also noticed that at the time when I would slow down enough to just sort of let him go by and say, look, come on, take the lead, do something here. Um, it didn't seem to me he had any sense of pace. Um, and, uh, later on I saw athletes when I was doing TV commentary who, who were doping and, and when in their sort of breakthrough races that, that very often happens, you know, they're running so much beyond the way they've ever run before that they kind of don't know how to act (laughs) (laughs) or, or, and, and so it, it, again i was i was sort of confused because in in the marathon at least until that point and i'm not sure even after that point people don't drop out of the sky they just don't right and and so i was i was curious and finally going through and we went up over mount royal um which was a pretty stiff climb and coming back down we passed through the university of montreal I'll never forget we took a right hand turn through uh, mcgill university and and right there, he, he took off, made a surge, very easy. He got 20 yards on me, just like that. And um, so I made up the difference, and he did that a couple more times, and we left the university. We were heading south, took a left-hand turn to head east back to the Olympic Stadium, past 20 miles. I got to within about 50 meters, maybe less, and he just turned around, and he looked at me, and our eyes met, and he turned around and took off. And, you know, I'll just never, never, uh, never forget it. And you did but, not recognize his face. Oh, I had no idea who it was. Right. I had no idea who it was. Mm. But I decided to run through to the finish. And I got, and this is another spooky part of the story. I got to the same point outside the Olympic tunnel and I heard the roar again. <laughs> but this time, this time... It was because someone ahead of me was out on the track. And I said to myself, you know, I'm never going to hear this roar. (laughs) (laughs) It just, just, I did. It just isn't going to (laughs) happen. And and so um, then the, the other interesting thing, again, when I talk about, you know, people not knowing how to act, he, so he was less than a lap ahead. And so as I started down the backstretch of the final lap, we had to run down the straightaway, finishing, run an extra lap. So you ran 500 yards in the track. I ran around, crossed the finish line, looked for him, and realized he was still running. He thought, for whatever reason, he had two laps when he, when he came into the stadium. So this, this only time I think in the Olympics where the second place person is waiting at the finish line to greet the first place person. He, he did an extra yeah. lap unnecessarily. Yeah, he did an extra yeah. lap. And so the question is, oh, okay. I mean, it's just the whole weirdness of the situation. What I did afterwards, my, my wife 
of the time Louise was there. And I just went back after the medal ceremony and got my stuff out in Olympic Village and drove that night back over the border to Canton, New York, where I had relatives. Because hmm. I needed to what I call reframe. I needed to sort of try to figure out, you know, what had happened. Now, the minute I found out from East Germany, uh, he was from East Germany, and I, you know, had, we had all been hearing about what had been going on with the swimmers, um, the the women swimmers, you know, the the actual stories of, say, the female swimmer from Great Britain who's favored for a gold medal and walks to the practice pool the first time and goes into the locker room and turns around and runs out because she thinks she's in the men's locker room and then realizes it is the women's locker room and goes in and finds out it's the East German women talking around the corner. Right. You know, it, you know, when we had, when we had that kind of stuff going on, that was, that was sort of what I had to process. And I bit my tongue for 22 years. And bit your, bit your tongue from saying what? What? That I felt that, um, Trapinski had been using performance enhancing, some sort of performance enhancing drugs. Hmm. So Waldemar Trapinski was never formally charged with no. doping. And no. in fact, he still continues to possess the gold medal in the marathon from the 1976 Olympics. Have you had any communication with him at all no. since then? No, no, I never have. Does it still burn you to know that Trapinski has what by all rights is your gold marathon or your gold no. medal? No, no, you know, in... But it's the, in a way, it's the same thing as when the imposter kid went on the track in 1972. You know, it, it, it just, I don't know maybe what it is about me, but it, it didn't bother me in the way that other people expected it to. You, you know, it's how I, I deal with those kind of situations by reframing. Yeah. The way I have dealt with what I feel happened in 1976 has been to work to create what now exists today in terms of the fight against performance-enhancing drugs. Right. Okay, so I just want to change subjects here a little bit to something that people may not know about you. You had a very rough childhood, yet you somehow used that to make yourself a better runner and a better person. So can you talk a little bit about what life was like with your father when you were growing up? Yeah, it... I, I come from a family of 10 children, and my father was a very successful general practice doctor in our hometown, and he was, he was one of those physicians who was always on call, did house calls, um, did public service in the community, very often might not charge an indigent family, and then he would come home and have a total personality shift, and he basically became uh, a sadistic, abusive sociopath. And a typical night at home a couple times a week would be he'd come home late and um, sometimes drunk, sometimes not. We'd all be up in bed in our various bedrooms, and he would sort of interrogate my mother in the kitchen. We could all hear him, and then he was going to decide which kid he was going to beat that night. So he would come up the stairs, and we'd all wait and see who he was going to drag out of bed and beat. And he would beat us so hard um, that he actually went anaerobic. He, he, in track terms, he sounded like a shot putter grunting when they put the shot mm. uh, when he was hitting us. And um, he again, he would, he, it would, it wasn't so much random. He just would decide who it was going to be. And this was basically the pattern. And what emerged later was uh, with my sisters, uh, sometimes it would go beyond that. And so as certain children, I was the second oldest. And my older brother, um, who really was not, um, who, who had a lot of problems, a lot of, a lot of emotional problems and, and uh, learning problems and... <sighs> And um, uh, also, unfortunately, did time in jail as an adult for doing the same thing to his kids. Mm. And so I became kind of the protector. And I, at an early age, learned how, not learned, but I figured out a, a survival techniques, coping techniques, whereas to try to make it um, 
as safe as possible in that kind of situation because at that time um, in the 1950s, uh, communities weren't the way they are now in terms of uh, dealing with that kind of situation. Right. So it, it, was, it, was, uh, it was terrible. How often were you the one who was on the receiving end of your father's uh, I, abuse? I, I honestly can't remember because I think there, you, you suppress a lot of that stuff. Mm. And it never really came out until five years ago because I think there's a lot that, that you don't remember. And I think the main part of that, maybe the, the best way to talk about it is, you know, when you're a child and you're in that kind of situation, you develop a kind of fear that stays with you into adulthood. And uh, the fear <sighs> I, I can honestly say that the the fear that this person could still kill you uh, is always there hmm. until they're no longer alive. Right. Uh, but I think what you do do is you develop ways um, to survive. And my survival way was to kind of get out of the house when I could. And I look for mentors and sane people and, and examples in other families and other adults that were normal. Um, and, and, uh, and what I always told people and talk about is that at about the age of five, in the middle of a beating, I, I thought to myself, you know, nothing I did deserves this. And that was the turning point. <laughs> For me, yeah, and and then I I looked for ways to get out and and to again long story short found running at about age eight nine ten, and used activity from the time I was five time I can remember, you know being out doing physical things, games, um, you know stints at the YMCA swimming basketball little league, and then I found running, and I found that just moving across the ground was the best thing I could do for my stress relief. And I was safe because he couldn't run. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> he couldn't catch me. Literally and figuratively, he couldn't catch me. And so by the t time I was 10, 11 years old, I started running to and from school, which is about, it was about 2.3 miles away. And I carry my books and I wouldn't run all the time. And, and I found some sneakers that were flexible sole and low cuts and this would have been 1960, maybe, 61. Way, way pre-running boom. Not a lot of people out running oh, on the roads. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and the dress code at school was black tie shoes for all the kids. And I convinced the principal to let me wear my sneakers because I was running to and from school. I <laughs> <laughs> couldn't believe it. And now. And then I convinced the gym teacher to allow me to run laps around the field during gym class rather than play flag football or jump on the trampoline, or whatever it was they were doing. And, and so I just, I just discovered running. And, and it wasn't to achieve, and there weren't any road races. It was just that. And I was the only person in town doing it. I really was. That's how I kind of, in a way, escaped the abuse. Yeah. Um, and then at home, since I kind of found my way, then I could be much more of a caretaker, uh, and try to set up circumstances to minimize the damage. So in a sense, I was always in a crisis management damage control situation at home. I did the grocery shopping. I did the cart down the hill and got the groceries. I did Christmas. <laughs> yeah. I did the tree. I was 10 years old, 11 years old. That was the kind of childhood it was, but the whole point in terms of where it led me, it led me to a way of coping and dealing and with things, and, and then also with running. And I, I think I combined the two. Yeah. I think I, I used the mental skills I developed in that situation to sort of create and refine my own running program. So, and that's why I think it's easier for me to, for people to maybe understand now why I was my own coach from right. the time I graduated from college. I never had a coach. Because, you see, I've, I've, that's the way I always approach things, was sort of just me. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's, so it's clear how running helped you uh, escape from the trauma of your childhood. You also write beautifully in the book about how the abuse that you suffered taught you to ride your pain as a runner. What, what does that mean, ride your pain? It's... Means that when you're getting beaten, 
And you sort of learn, since it's frequent enough, you learn what the pattern is. For instance, um, if, if he were really drunk, that also could be an advantage because then he'd forget to use the buckle end of the belt. And what you learn is the beating is going to last a certain amount of time, and it's going to hurt to a certain degree. And in a way, you learn to relax and ride it. You ride it out. I think that sort of mental ability uh, carried me, especially in, in the endurance events. I, I think I developed ability to get to a point of knowing, okay, this is the edge. This is the limit. And if I can just ride this limit and not take it any further, I, can, I know how much is, is going to happen and how much I'm going to feel of this to the end. And I do know it's going to be over. Yeah. I hope that makes sense. It, it, absolutely. I, I'm wondering, was it so literal, though, that, say, when you were running in the streets of Munich in 1972 in the, in the Olympics, were you thinking literally about your father? Or was that just so far no, in the back? I- no, I. But it's it's the same feeling, you know. Uh, it when in those endurance events, you at least for me, I could get to a certain point and go, okay, this is the edge. This is the edge. You know, any further, I I go off the cliff. And and and, but I do it in a way that I've I have some sense of how long I have to go. And and so it's not really dealing with the pain at that particular moment. It's sort of. In, in mentally um, doling out your acceptance of it. Maybe that's the word. Yeah. But the other point, again, I think ironically that I learned was, you know, this may feel really bad, but it is going to be over. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. <laughs> it, it, it is. Well, in lots of ways, you did es- escape that horrible childhood and went on, obviously, to distinguish yourself in many ways as a runner, as a lawyer, as an advocate in the sport. Your father died in 2008, so he was alive for the vast majority of all of that. He was alive when you were running in the Olympics. He was alive when you won an Olympic gold medal. And as a reader, it was almost as heartbreaking. I say almost because nothing is more egregious than the abuse that your father inflicted on you and your your family. But it was also heartbreaking to read how unsupportive, in fact, utterly disinterested he was in your later success. Did, did that feel just as bad to you at the time, or, or were you inured to it? I was inured to it because, you know, I, I realized just I don't deserve this. I never thought about it. My father saw me run one cross-country race when I was in prep school. He didn't even watch either Olympics on television. And during the award ceremony, he walked into the next room after having told one of my sisters who was watching, oh, well, now Frank's going to get a big head. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, you know, I, I, I really had learned to expect it. And, and, and in a way, I, I, this is the first time I've really thought about the Munich Massacre situation the same way. Perhaps it was that same um, feeling developed, you know, I'm, I'm not going to play his game or their game. You know, I'm just not. And, and, not gonna, and, and you're going to ride your fear. You're not going to give in to it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's it. I'm just, I'm not going to allow that to control what I do because it's, in a way, it, well, it, it was terrorism. It was, a, you know, a household terrorism. And it's controlled through fear. And it's through fear of an unexpected occurrence. You never know what's going to set things off. You never know when something's going to happen. And, and it, it's even worse than walking on eggshells. I mean, it's, it's just, you know, you, okay, if someone walks in the door, <laughs> yeah. you, it's no coincidence that I have a situation called white coat. I have white coat syndrome, which means when I have my blood pressure taken, they put the cuff on and they tighten the cuff and my blood pressure skyrockets. Three of my sisters who are nurses have the same condition. And guess what you do when you're beating a kid and you don't want him to get away? You grab their arm uh, and you squeeze. Yeah. Wow. That's horrible. So last <laughs> last question then about this topic. Okay. I'm just curious, what kind yep. of interactions have you had with people since you've decided to talk about this publicly? After the article appeared in Runner's World, um, 
I know you obviously you didn't talk about it for for decades. Are you glad that you talked about it publicly now? Yes, I am because of the impact it had on my sisters because they had it much worse than I did because they were girls. Yeah. And um, they now have, many of them have been able to now talk about it and, and we can actually get together and talk because, you know, we didn't have family reunions. I mean, what are you going to talk about? <laughs> but, but once it all kind of came, and they were the ones who were necessary to corroborate the story so that Runner's World would print it. Right. And I didn't even know that the story was more horrific than I thought because my sisters came forward with their stories, which were much worse than mine. And, and so, uh, no, I have no, I have no regrets about it, um, in, in that regard, you know, and, and the other thing is invariably when I, I don't really travel and go to many events now intentionally. Um, but when I go invariably, several people will come up to me and people you would never expect and, and tell me, uh, yep, it's kind of my story. And, and that is all the gratitude I need. This, this activity knows no social economic status. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't. It, it's, it's, uh, it doesn't care where you're from. Before we close, Frank, I want to ask you about your current running life. How's your health, and, and what's your running life like these days? Well, my health's very good. Um, and at this point, I'm... I train a lot. I train as much during the day as I ever did. Wow. I do elliptical training where I do a lot of my high um, heart rate training, and I do a lot of stationary biking. I do some outside biking. And then I run about four times a week. But I run just for the flow. In fact, it's almost, it really is a full circle. I'm back. I'm uh, I'm 11 years old again with my running. Mm-hmm. I, I just go out the door and, and run. And because that's where I feel the best. That's where I like to think. And, and so, you know, that's, that's, in fact, when I get done this interview, I'm going out and running. <laughs> and, and, and I've always viewed the running. Um, and, and when you talk about the running life, um, running has always been part of my life in the sense that it's always been my reward. So that even when I was a child and then when I was in prep school and then when I was in college and even then after I started to go downhill in my performance and I became more of a, person doing other things, running was always my reward for getting all the other stuff I needed to do in the day done. (laughs) So uh, I truly believe we all have what's called, I call an exercise quotient. We need to do a certain, we need to burn a certain number of calories in a certain way in a day, (laughs) at least for me, to satisfy myself. And and so uh, I had to sort of take up the slack because I can't, I can't run an average of 17 miles a day anymore. I did that for 10 years. I went from 1970 to 80 and averaged 17 miles a day of running for a decade. Wow. And I can't do that anymore. But, but I still enjoy burning calories through activity. So um, still do the same. It's just I only run about 25 miles a week now. Well, I don't want to stand between you and your next run. What a great conversation. Frank, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Talk to you soon. Yeah, that was good. Okay, bye-bye. In the first part of my interview with Frank, we talked about his friend and training partner, Steve Prefontaine. Frank was one of the last people to see Pre alive on the night he died in a car accident. You can find that interview in episode 13 of the show in iTunes or at runnersworld.com audio. Okay, now it's time for The Kick with editor Brian Dalek and reporter Kit Fox. All right, Kit, for The Kick this week, I want to start off with something we've actually reported on in The Kick before. Um, we're super into following the latest in emojis, and you have an update on this. We've been all over the emoji beat, and it's breaking news, mm-hmm. news flash, cue the music. Apple just announced that a female running emoji is finally coming to the iPhone. Yeah, so this is great. Facebook announced that they are going to have a female runner emoji in their Messenger app, but this is for all Apple devices, and there are other new athletic type of emojis as well. Yeah, you're going to be able on your iPhone to show off a mountain biker, surfer, weightlifter, swimmer, and I think one of the more underrated um, 
updates that's happening is the male runner emoji is finally going to get rid of those jeans and mm-hmm. put on a tasteful pair of short shorts. As he should. Yes. As he should. And this is big news for what elite runner? So Molly Huddle has been on this tireless campaign to get a female runner emoji. Mm-hmm. Um, like so, since last fall. Yeah, exactly. Along so, with winning a lot of races, she has been championing this. Exactly. And finally, she's super excited. She tweeted out about the, the new update, as she had with the Facebook update as well. Um, so this is kind of a bit of a victory for her headed into what we hope will be many victories for her over the next week. Yeah, exactly. She will be competing in the Olympics this weekend. Um, everything got kicked off last weekend in the Olympics, but running events start this you know, this week. What events should people be keen in on as they watch? Um, well, starting right off the bat, we have the women's 10,000 meters, which is what Molly Huddle is going to be mm-hmm. competing in on Friday. That gets off at 10, 10 a.m. Eastern time. Yeah, in the morning. In the morning. Um then on Saturday, in prime time at 8.25 p.m., we'll have the 10,000 meters, which is going to be a Galen Rupp Mo Farah show, which would be really exciting. Um, you're going to want to get to bed early, though, because the next mm-hmm. morning, Sunday morning, 8.30 a.m. Eastern, that's going to be a brutal 5.30 a.m. for you West Coasters. We have the <laughs> women's marathon kicking off throughout Rio de Janeiro. Um, So those are the kind of biggest three running distance events that we have over the weekend. Yeah, so those are the distance events, but the one event pretty much everyone tunes into for the Olympics is also happening this weekend. Sunday night, 9.25 p.m. Eastern, we have the men's 100 meters final, which of course, is going to feature Usain Bolt. Mm-hmm. Um, bit of an interesting year, though. He's been dealing with some injuries, and he'll be going up against Justin Gatlin from the U.S. So it's going to be a really fast race, really interesting to watch. Okay, so beyond the weekend, is there anything else besides, I, I know you love the hammer throw, anything else you're looking forward to on the track? Um Of course, off the track, Hammer, best event there is. Mm -hmm. On the track, Monday, we have the uh, Steeplechase Women's Final at 10.15 a.m. That's going to be really exciting because we're probably sending the strongest American field we've ever had in Emma Coburn, who definitely has a shot to medal. So really looking forward to that event. Of course, throughout the rest of the week, there's track action going on both in morning sessions and evening sessions. So you can follow along at runnersworld.com slash Olympics to get all your up-to-date information. Yeah, and you can follow us on Twitter and on Facebook as well. We have reporters down there, Sarah Lorge Butler, you heard her last week, and Aaron Strout will be in Rio. So that's the Olympics. There are a couple other stories not related to the Olympics that were popular on our site this week. One is about a 19-year-old. He broke the four-minute mile this past weekend, but there's a lot more to his story. Yeah, Mikey Brannigan ran a 357.58 at the Sir Walter Miler in North Carolina this past weekend. Now, Mikey is a runner with autism, and he's actually a Paralympian who's expected to win gold in the 1500 later on in Rio. He's the first um, Paralympian with what's called a T20 classification to break four minutes in the mile. And um, he's actually in putting in these times has a goal of making the Olympics in Tokyo in 2020 or even looking further out to 2024. Yeah, 357 is super fast, so congratulations to Mikey. All right, Brian. Mm -hmm. um, I now have a joke for you. Oh, great. Uh, A man walks into a bar. This this could only lead to bad things coming from you. Yeah, man walks into a bar, Mm -hmm. and he runs a marathon. Oh, that's the punchline? That's the punchline. <laughs> um, not really so a joke. So w- what is the story behind this? It, it actually happened uh, this past weekend. Uh, a Connecticut man named Jimmy Booth, this is the fifth time he's done this. He's hauled a treadmill into his local pub. Because as most people do. Yeah, you know. Um, completely sober, by the way, <laughs> we, should, we should mention. Um, and he's hopped on the treadmill and run a marathon uh, to raise money for charity. This year he raised $1,300 for charity. Okay, and Jimmy raises money for different organizations every year. Where did it go this year? It went to Homes for the Brave. It's a nonprofit that provides housing and services for homeless military veterans, which is great. And um, surprisingly, he did not have any beer at all during the run. 
Yeah, we love the runners doing good stories, and this is a perfect example of that. But if I'm on a treadmill for how long was uh, he on there? Five hours and 50 minutes. If I'm on a treadmill for five hours and 50 minutes, I think I'm going to have to ask the you know, the establishment to help me out with a couple drinks along the You're way. You're going to be running up that tab as you run up those miles. Oh, way to go, Kit. High five on Thank that. Thank you. I'll give you that. <laughs> okay, so it's an exciting weekend with the running events getting going in Rio. So make sure you're tuning in at home. Maybe watch from a bar, you know, whatever you want. Maybe at a bar on a treadmill. If you can take a treadmill into a bar and they'll allow that, sure, why not? They let Jimmy Booth do it, so why not me, Brian? Yeah, you should just try going down the street and doing it this weekend. Right? I think I, I think I will. All right, well, it's going to be a spectacle. Let us know. Um, thanks for joining us for the kick this week. All right, thank you, Brian. That's it for this week's show. Although, well, almost. We've got one more thing. In a few weeks, we're going to devote an entire show to answering your questions about the marathon. About training, racing, tapering, nutrition, gear, whatever you want to know about training for and running 26.2 miles. So, send us your questions, please. You can tweet them to us at rwaudio or email them to rwaudio at rodale.com. Again, tweet your questions to at rwaudio or email them to rwaudio at rodale, that's R-O-D-A-L-E dot com. You can also head over to runnersworld.com slash audio for more info. Okay, now we're done. I'm Runners World Editor-in-Chief David Willey. This show was produced by Sylvia Ryerson, Mervyn Deganos, Christine Fennessy, and Brian Daly. The Runners World Show is part of the Panoply Network. Please join us next week when we talk with the oldest American male ever to run the Olympic marathon. You won't want to miss it. Thank you for joining us.